Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark. March the 8th, 2019, episode 73 which is part two, because we went on a little bit too long last time, Mark. So this is part two, our main topic this week, reproductive problems in lizards, part two. So what have you been up to, Mark, this week? Well, I'm still whinging about work, Brendan, I'm whinging that uh, that I've had to do the full-time thing, but um, I'm so glad that uh, the wonderful Dr. Lily has returned from her Austrian um our Austrian jaunt in the snow in Europe, and uh, and she's back at work. So I am very joyous that I now can return to my more relaxed lifestyle. But Brendan, I've, I'm angry. I'm really, really angry because what's happened? Parallel lines have happened, Brendan. You sent me pictures of your woodwork. Oh um, yes, I did, <laughs> and and and. That's not well. It's not like any woodwork I've ever done. It was it was excellent. It was um, and the the uh, the the your work table was you know the BMW was awesome. But I was particularly impressed with the uh, you know the the uh, perspective lines. The photograph you took gave me excellent um, uh, excellent lines off into the distance in in perpendicular directions um, and everything field, was level yes. and straight it was awesome woodwork I was I must admit I was quite chuffed I was quite happy with how it came together and I think the reason being was I took my time even though it was done over that weekend um, hence the name it's a weekend sort of course for each um, project and um yeah, I was just sort of in, in the moment, Mark, and um, I was quite surprised when I did all the cuts for all the different um, sections that they all came out straight and the same length. And when I put the little table together, yeah, it, um, it wasn't wobbly and um, all the angles were, it the 90 degree angles were, were looking really good. It yeah. looks like a board one. <laughs> It looks like something from Ikea, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I was very happy. So, But there's a bit of a challenge the next week. The one that I'll be doing in this weekend um, is a, um, a challenge because it's a, a bit of a step up. It's a, um, a garden seat. Um, so um, I'm a little bit um, hesitant about tackling this one, but um, I'm going to do my best. I'll never know what happens well, with the, it. So, the, the trend so far, Brendan, indicates no chance of failure. Actually, <laughs> don't put any pressure on me, Mark. When you said um, you're angry about parallel lines, I thought um, the council had um, put double lines outside your clinic and nobody can park there anymore. I thought that's don't what you were going don't to say. even start me on council and parking. Um, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you my story about the council and um, the clinic. I was um, I got to work fairly early, as I usually do on the days that I'm working, and I parked my car out in the little car park out the back, which only fits my one car actually and uh the it was the day for the bin collection with the big bin trucks that they uh, the two trucks come on the same day it's mon- it would, would have been the monday morning is when they come and uh i and they go down the little laneway at the back of the group of shops um in order to pick up the bins from the other the other shops and then they come around the corner and ours is on the side street so we're right at the end of the, the laneway and I heard this almighty crash oh, no. <laughs> as the car, the big um, big um, recycling um, um, truck was going down. I thought, oh, my goodness, I hope it's not. Well, it's an easy mistake to make, Brendan. I could easily see some poor bloke driving one of those trucks, you know, with the little robot arm that comes out and tips the green bin into the into the um, truck, um, yes. you know, your, your vehicle is an easy mistake to make. They could have just <laughs> latched the robot well, onto Yes, yeah, so it wasn't quite that bad. Um, what had happened is the side of the truck on the side away from where my car was parked um, was very close to the fence and there was an overhanging 
fairly big tree and he and he took out most of the tree with the truck and so there's this massive um branch that had fallen in the laneway across where my car is it didn't hit my car thank goodness and 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 blocking the blocking my car from getting out um and i tell you what it's the fastest i've ever seen council workers work um not we, um so apologies to any council worker who's listening <laughs> to our podcast um I, he, he sat in the truck for about 10 minutes and i, and I don't know whether he's sitting there crying or, or or checking his truck or or, or reading the paper but he must have been on to the council because about five minutes later maybe 10 minutes later the the other council workers arrived with the mulching machine and and the, and the change chainsaws and and it was chopped up and and dispatched and, and off they were half an hour later. Um, and I heard you just throw an empty um, um, beer can or something in the bin there, Mark. Um, you've got to you've got to kick that habit. Um, so yeah. If we've ever had trees down um, from storms and things in our in our street, and we're in a reasonably bushy area, as you know, um, we'd be lucky to get them arrived the next day. Um, but yeah, since it was their were they, fault were they, and his were, fault, were um, these the same council workers who cleaned out your wasps? Oh yes, the wasps. Um, yeah, they haven't come back since I fixed the wasps, and I can't remember what episode that was when we spoke about the wasps out the back. But yeah, um, no, I'm sure that um, they would have been the wasp patrol people that came last time, and um, these were the um, the clean up um, people for the um, for the trees, the arborist, I suppose. Um, yeah. So yeah, so a little bit of. Um, a little bit of excitement for the week, Mark, um, that was, and that's enough excitement. We have enough excitement with our cases um, for for the day, let alone having trees um, being accidentally ripped out um, behind the clinic. And I'm going to, Mark, I've got a, um, I just remembered, I've got a review. Oh, crockies, this isn't on the agenda. I have a review. No, it isn't. Um, and before we say that, um, for any of our new listeners, and we might have a few new listeners this week, Mark, because I, I plugged the podcast to the first year group of the Bachelor of Veterinary Nursing at Melbourne Polytechnic, who um, I gave some lectures to. And we did some tutorials. We did some handling of um, safe handling and restraint of rabbits guinea pigs and rats and we had um people from the rescue organizations come in and we had a great a great day um handling rats and guinea pigs and um rabbits so i plugged the podcast to them so we might get a few more listeners um um, so hello to any of those students and um yeah Hello to Microchips Australia, Specialised Animal Nutrition and Chemical Essentials. So there are three sponsors because I know we haven't sort of plugged them the last few weeks. And vetgurus.com is a place to go um, if you want any of the show notes. So my review, Mark, my review is of a slightly non-veterinary product and that's the Google Home Mini. And I don't know whether you've got any of these products in your house, Mark. I've had the little Google Home Mini speaker in the kitchen for probably, I don't know, a year and a half we've had it and um, we use it all the time, mainly as a timer um, where we, you know, or Annie does, she does most of the cooking these days, I'm pretty slack, um, to, to do timing for, you know, um, Hey, Google, and that might have set off somebody's Google um, device, um, set a timer for 20 minutes. But I'm enjoying it because I ask it all sorts of things and um, half the time it ignores me. But um, if you ask Google Home or the Google Assistant um, to play the Vet Podcast with Brendan and Mark, guess what? It plays our podcast, Mark. Um, Mine certainly did. So um, I'm giving it a nine and a half out of ten because of that. Um, (laughs) And we have all, we have, uh, you know, as you know, I've got Apple devices mainly. And so we have Siri on our Apple devices. We have the Google Home. And I also have a, a um, Alexa device, which is the Amazon Echo Dot in the, in the, in the back room where I am here, Mark, um, because that came with, um, the um, TV that I bought not that long ago, so I can use that to turn on the TV, which is pretty groovy. So we've got all three um, of the Rockies, Brendan, the um, devices, the CIA, the uh, the uh, um, German Stasi, and the KGB okay, <laughs> will all be able to look into your house and see. Yes, what you're and, up to. They're all, 
and they're all falling asleep yes um so yes so sometimes i get a little bit confused and i don't know who to ask for what um and I just start crying and say, Annie, who do, I, who do I ask? I need some advice on something. Please help me. So, yes, the Google Home Mini, um, well worth it because it not only can play the Vet Gurus podcast, but you can also get the weather. It works fantastic as a timer, so I think most people end up using it in the kitchen. Just plug it in as a speaker. You can play music if you have Google Music. Um, and I think they link up with Apple Music recently. They announced that, but I'm not sure whether it's working yet. Um, and, um, yeah, you can. It, um, it's good. I like it. So that's my review, Mark. Good work, Brendan. That was punchy and to the point and promoted the podcast. So... Ticks in every box. Job done. What is your first news story, Mark? Let's jump into the news. Well, I was. Um, I this. Uh, I have to thank. Shout out to our wonderful vet gurus researcher who um, flicked to me this story um, from BirdLife Australia about uh, the record-breaking frigate bird. Um, so frigate birds, for those... A what bird? A fr- <laughs> you did this when we first started. A frigate bird. Um, the frigate birds, <laughs> for people who uh, have their holidays on tropical islands, are the uh, um, thinned-winged gliding birds who often fly at the front of storms. And so if you're in Fiji and there's a bit of a storm happening out in the Pacific, they'll um, hang around the coast and uh, ride the the uh, updrafts. Um, and um, and I think they do a little bit of, um, what's the technical word for it, um, where they uh, steal the food off other carnivorous birds, kleptoparasitism, that's it. So they're great birds. I love them dearly. And it's always a big buzz when I'm on one of those tropical islands about to go diving or coming back from a dive and we see the frigate birds. They are... Um, they're a good omen. Um, but this story hinges on a great frigate bird, one of the two species, that was uh, banded, that was fitted with a band back in 1985. Now, interestingly enough, uh, um, there's a lot of banding goes on. Um, and it's a bit controversial, Brendan. I'll touch on this, even though you want me to be punchy, I'll touch on this briefly in a moment. But there's 479 great frigate birds that have ba- been banded in Australia. And uh, these birds are generally banded by researchers in the uh, nesting colony. Um, and and the both the um, observation of the location of uh, banded birds, the actual location and the time frame, is really, really a, a, a huge amount of data um, that can be used to talk to people, to uh, develop um, population studies, to, uh, um, migration studies, um, and really these banding studies have been... Um, have been really revealing some amazing things across many species, but this frigate bird um, recently I think I've lost showed mark up there. Um, so, um, four hundred and twenty-two kilometres away from the island, where rejoins it us with his frigate rung, bird story. Um, and um, thirty-four years old, Brendan, the largest, the longest uh, time, according to between, our recording uh, system here. I might jump on to the next story. Previously, oh, maybe I this species I was four. Years, um, so this is a big punch up in the knowledge of the longevity of the frigate birds. Um, it also gives us some idea about um, about uh, how far they're likely to travel. Now, this particular bird was um, was uh, um, affected by the tropical cyclone up there um, off far north Queensland, and that probably pushed it out of its normal territory and down south, and the bird was injured when it was found. Um, but, geez, 34 years for one of those birds is um, is really a bit of a record, Brendan. Frigate birds, Mark. Now, my internet dropped out there for a little bit, so this might be a little bit disjointed your um, talk about your frigate birds. Um, so... What were you saying? <laughs> well, I was I was just um, highlighting the fact that um, it was a long-lived bird that travelled a long way, and um, and the weather patterns, the monsoonal trough that affected North Queensland, did sweep it 
down the coast quite a way and it ended up with an injured wing, was taken into care, but due to its age, poor condition and injury, it had to be unfortunately euthanized. But 34 years, Brendan, that's a... Jeez, that's a long that's time. It's a frigate bird, isn't it? That is a fr- now. What is it with frigate birds, Mark? I think they got tabs on themselves. Um, so we have the great frigate bird, and we also have the magnificent frigate bird, Mark. So <laughs> why are they are called all these amazing? Um, 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 well, although there is one called the lesser frigate bird, isn't there? Is that right? The lesser um, frigate bird is still pretty great. <laughs> Yeah, so what is it about um, why are they so um, fantastic? Well, they, they're, they're just beautiful to watch. They're effortless flyers, Brendan. They, they will um, fly for hours without flapping their wings, and um, it's just heartwarming and, and truly great and magnificent to watch them do this. <laughs> Um, they are, they're not good photographic subjects, I've got to quickly point out, because they're relatively dark birds, black birds um, from the underside, a moderate distance away against a bright sky, so you'll realise the difficulties of exposing them in suitable ways. They're a challenge, yes, they're a challenge. So uh, I'm sure you'll get a good frigate bird photo soon, Mark, so I'm looking forward to that. My first news story is... Well, which one will I do first? It is about, it's a bit of a sad one, uh, makes me a little bit angry, Mark, and that is 1,500 live turtles were found wrapped in duct tape at Manila Airport. And they discovered these, well, it was 1,529 live turtles, to be precise, according to The Guardian, um, were wrapped in duct tape inside suitcases and they were abandoned in the Manila airport um, recently. And they'd been brought on a flight from Hong Kong by a passenger from the Philippines and left unclaimed in the arrivals area. And there was a fair mix of animals there, Mark, um, that were in that, and um, there's a couple of photos there. Um, oh, sorry, I think there was more than just these. Although it does talk, talk just about the turtles. I thought it did say there was more than that. Maybe it was just talking about different species that had been found. Um, the reason why this piqued my interest, Mark, is that I've had to deal, unfortunately, with um, reptiles that have been smuggled um, in the last um, six months or so um, where I've been... Um, um, called to treat and unfortunately euthanize some mainly lizards um, that w- where they'd had their limbs duct taped um, to their bodies um, to their torsos um, for transport and smuggling overseas from Australia and um, it's a pretty horrific thing to see them I don't know whether you've seen any of these Mark and they end up depending on how long they've had their limbs taped for they end up with nerve paralysis um, with them and some of them unfortunately don't um, don't manage to recover and we end up having to euthanize them so it's a pretty sad sight um seeing that so you know um and we've spoken at length haven't we and many times about the the smuggling of animals and yeah 1500 of the mark in one one episode so it's, it's it is genuinely heartbreaking and so cruel and pointless and and just wholly and solely based in the, the, you know, you've said these exact words before, that as soon as you mix money and animals, um, the quality of life, the animal welfare takes a very sad second place. And and this is uh, another example. And, um, and I, look, we've said before, I understand that there are people in some third world countries who who are just trying to get their families fed and um, and who may um, cause some damage to wild populations of animals as a consequence of just trying to survive. But these ones, Brendan, I think they are urbane um, criminals who literally are just after the cash. And, um, yes. And it, it is heartbreaking. And although it is one of the 1,001 uses of duct tape, Mark, it's probably not one that we'd recommend. Um, well, did you use the, it for? The, the inventor of gaffer tape passed away last week, Brendan, and he would be... What, John Gaffer? <laughs> he would be very <laughs> distressed to know that his, um, well, a variety of his invention has been used in this way. Yes, I'm sure he would. My next Your last one, news story. Yes. My next one is um, equally sad, but in a different way. It uh, is um, the uh, study revealing Australia's 10 worst invasive species. Now, 
um, you know my dear, dear love of Australian wildlife um, and, and, and Indigenous wildlife around the world and the huge amount of damage that, um, that humans have wrought by introducing exotic species. Um, and Australia is one of the worst places in the world for that. But I must admit that, you know, in our discussions about this, I, I, did, I was a little bit ambivalent about some of the 10 worst invasive species um, but I'm I'm going to do the countdown, Brendan, and then we'll touch on just one or two of them before we close off Australia's top ten. We're going to do a bit of a BuzzFeed list. Um, Europe, the European rabbit, but each of these were ranked on the number of species of Australian native plants and animals that they were a critical factor in leading to um, their their they're in the, the endangered status. So the number of species that were endangered um, uh, led to how badly these um, species were considered uh, to the environment. Massive. Yeah, yes. I've completely messed that explanation up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so number one was the European rabbit, um, which affects uh, uh, um, critically endangered th uh, species, 321 of them. Um, and um, and geez, uh, uh, we, I've seen some places in South Australia where they've fenced uh, rabbits out, um, and the combination of aggressive fencing, aggressive hunting and trapping, and Khaleesi virus has rendered slabs of country rabbit free. And Brendan, seeds that are forty years old sprout. In a few years, and and um, the environment returns to some some uh, recollection of what it was. So I can see why they're up there at number one. Phytophthora was a surprise number two entry. Phytophthora is a a, um, a earth born fungus which attacks the roots particularly of the proteaceous plants so there's a wide number of grevilleas and banksias a lot of the eucalypts are rare eucalypts that are um uh, that are damaged and and uh, um, and killed by um this root fungus which is spread interestingly enough by <clears throat> four-wheel drives then the list drops down to feral pigs, feral cats, feral goats. Uh, the European red fox comes in at number six. Lantana is uh, seven. Blackberry, black rat, and feral cattle round out the um, the uh, top ten. And I was genuinely surprised about Lantana. I said to you, Brendan, because locally it uh, it does provide a an unusual, persistent, um, uh, close-to-the-ground thicket-type habitat, which is important for some of our local birds, but there are still 95 nati native species that are pushed towards um, threatened status by the presence of lantana. So so there you go, Brendan. That is depressing, Mark. <laughs> you know that what I'm... very depressing. You know what I'm like. Well, I'm going to uplift the mood here a bit with another depressing story, <laughs> but it has a bit of a, a bit of a funny twist, and that is the a well the headline is tortoise marriage ends after 115 years, and it's got lots of puns as you like um, as you know I like puns like slow and steady may win the race etc. Um, but it's about Bibi and Poldy, which were born both born around 1897, so. They have been living, Mark, longer together than any other living human can remember because it's been well over 115 years. And they previously shared space at Switzerland's Basel Zoo and in the last four decades they've been at Hap Reptile Zoo in Austria. So they were paired up pretty early on and um, they'd been together for many, many years. Um, but since 2012 or so, they do not like each other, Mark. And according to Ch Zoo Chief Helga Hap, who said in 2012, but for no reason that anyone can dis discover, they seem to have fallen out. They just can't stand each other. <laughs> and the bit that I loved about this story is that um, they didn't change anything about the tortoises' routine or their enclosures, and they just could not work out why they don't like each other anymore. So Bibi, the female, um, 
um, first alerted zoo staff to the breakup by attacking Poldy by biting a chunk out of his shell. And after several more attacks, I had to separate the former lovers, according to the, the news story. And, um, yeah, the bit I really enjoyed was that um, the, that this hasn't stopped staffers from trying to patch up their relationship They've reportedly tried couples counselling, engaging them in joint games and even feeding the Mark romantic good mood food. So I'll tell you what, Mark, if you know any romantic good mood food, can you please (laughs) tell me? And um, I'll quickly sneak it into Annie's dinner um, over the next few nights and we'll see what happens, Mark. So, yes, so they're they're not giving up on them and they think that they may be able to find their harmony again, according to the zoo, Um, but at the moment... She does not want to live with him, and she hisses like a snake, according to the keeper, and um, wants him to stay away. When I when I read this story, Brendan, I was um, you know, it has all the hallmarks of a Brendan story that puns just never stop. Um, but I was actually interested in your clinical impression. Is there is there likely to be like a you know, um um um. An actual disease process that a leads physio- to the yeah, if it's some physiological or, or or disease aspect, yes. So they they good excellent excellent pick up there, Mark. Um, gee, you you never fail to amaze me with your sharp mind, there, Mark. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, th- there's no mention about whether they've um, run um, bloods or hormone levels on on these two these two. Um, youngsters um because who knows how long they may live for they may get to 200 um so um i suppose we still may call them geriatrics um but yeah um i expect if they've done a thorough job they have um, done a bit of a work up on them both um but yeah i'd i'd be suspicious something's happening there mark if if nothing else has changed and um they just do not like each other or maybe they've just fallen out of love mark <laughs> you romantic sop you <laughs> so I think that's the end of our story. So we better get on to dystopia or, or reproductive problems in lizards part two. And we left off last week, Mark, and you wanted to just summarise the pre-ovulatory and post-ovulatory um, folliculite. I felt, yeah. I felt guilty all week. I felt guilty all week, Brendan, because um, I felt that, you know, it's our responsibility to, uh, particularly in this forum, um, this is a... a, a um, bit of bit of a relaxed forum, but um, I like us to be pretty scientifically precise. I like to live up to your endless um, ability to uh, to you know talk a lot of rubbish, read an evidence based <laughs> life um, in in every respect, but particularly the clinical part. Um, and I just felt I left it a little bit confused last week, and so I just wanted to make it absolutely clear um, that in my lizards, in the lizards I get to see, there are two broad groups. The females, once they, you know, there are a whole bunch of problems that we talked about in terms of uh, pain, maybe mating issues, but once they've gotten to the stage of being reproductively active adult females, there's two um, sort of situations where things go pear-shaped with the females. The first one is the one that we touched on, pre-ovulatory pre-ovulatory follicular stasis. Um, And as the name accurately describes, before the follicles are ovulated, um, they stall um, and they cause pain. And they're a little bit dangerous because they can rupture. And just as in birds, they can lead to a peritonitis, a coelomitis. So um, that that is... um, a really important diagnosis to make because it's um it's not something that you know any amount of drugs or um uh, uh you know um medical treatment is going to solve these uh issues um once the follicles um, develop and go past the point where they can be resorbed if they are not ovulated then they're going to cause problems and the only solution to those ones um, is a surgical solution surgical resection but the opposite case we were talking about brendan was the um 
post-ovulatory stasis issues. And and I don't know that I made it absolutely clear that those situations are analogous to dystochia and other species. The follicles have ovulated. They um, enter the oviduct. They may be fertilised. They may not be fertilised. Um, and for a variety of reasons, they often infections, often uh, salpingitides um, lead to altered um, contraction and adhesion within the oviduct and the uh, slugs, as we talked about, the infertile eggs or fertilised eggs may um, remain within the oviduct and and particularly those external factors, um, the environment, the uh, uh, the darkness, the nesting site with appropriate humidity and appropriate substrate, any of those things aren't there and then we have a dystochia or a post-ovulatory obstruction. And those ones, as we discussed, they're, I don't know, in my hands, maybe 50% of them, about half um, respond to medical treatment and about half of those end up being... um, cases that we've got to consider surgery on. The pre-ovulatory ones almost invariably involve an entire desexing where we take um, the ovaries and the oviduct out and the lizard is no longer a reproductively active female. The a certain percentage of the, the um, post-ovulatory uh, ones, the dystochias, we do surgery, but where they're valuable specimens and we um, uh, take samples to assess the bacteriology and um, and see if we can't get them to breed if they're valuable specimens. So they do fall into two very difficult categories. But you mentioned a case that you were dealing with, Brendan, and I was very, very keen to see how that had progressed over the week. It is actually due back this week, Mark, so um, I'm not sure which day, but I'll be seeing that um, lizard within the next few days. So I will update you and our listeners perhaps the next um, next podcast, Mark. So, yeah, you can wait. You can wait. We will all wait until we... Um, you know how impatient the, I am. Yeah, you just want me to get out of the scalpel and have a look inside, don't you? Yes, we will see. So, um, so just remind summary, me. Just remind yes. me again. Um, the medical treatment. What was your? Um, what were you doing medically to um, try and slide past the opportunity to um, slice this? Oh, it? that one was just. Uh, it, it had a um, pretty obvious inflammatory leukogram, um, and it was on. Um, it was on a combination of antibiotics and it was also on um, um, anti-inflammatories. Yeah, and um, the bloods were bouncing back really nicely. They were back within normal range. The lizard was a hell of a lot happier. It was um, eating better and starting to poo and it hadn't passed feces for a while. So it was dramatically improved um, from initially, yes. Now, so now I, will... I was headed towards the sorts of medical treatment that I would use in in those cases where I thought I had um, uh, eggs in the oviduct, retained in the oviduct, I would um, I would normally be using um, some form of parenteral calcium. Um, I have cracked out a little bit of um, oxytocin on these guys, and uh, we know that reptiles have a different um, amino acid sequence, um, vasotocin, um, and you can't get that unless you're in sort of an experimental situation. So we do use oxytocin um, at a relatively high dose compared to dogs and cats, but um, that it's still only those, and you've already highlighted that analgesia is absolutely critical and the other supportive things, heat and an appropriate location, but with all those things, I still probably only get 50% of the lizards that have um, eggs in the oviduct to pass them, Brendan. Yes, and you did mention about the differences between the different types of reptiles. So the um, our chelonians, our tortoises and turtles, um, they tend to respond very well to the medical treatment and oxytocin. Um, the lizards are um, variable and um, the snakes, um, well, certainly the Australian snakes, Mark, even though we're talking about lizards in this episode, um, I think most of the snakes, I end up taking them to surgery. 
Um, so that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you find the same? Yeah, almost precisely. The the um, the snakes in my hands. Um, the, we get an occasional die. Occasional what? <laughs> None of us die. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. Some do die. Um, but um, what I was going to say was that we do get the occasional snake that um, that passed a couple of eggs last year and the owner just, uh, the carer just watched them um, and they pass a bunch again this year. Um, uh, and But those are exceptions to the rule. Most of the snakes that have retained eggs get into serious circulatory and and uh, uh bacteriologic problems relatively quickly circulatory problems probably cause most of their pain and discomfort and uh and yes they're surgical cases almost all the australian pythons that we see with those problems end up um ones that i end up cutting open brendan yes same as me mark so let's jump on to another um let's jump on to boy bits so what do you do with lizards where we have a problem with the hemipenes, one or, or, or both of the hemipenes that have popped out, Mark, um, for, for potential? How may that happen? Why would that happen, Mark? Why do you think that happens? So we have a hemipene that um, is averted, uh, that, um, can't, that won't or can't be retracted back in. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons um uh the the um first one is that um is that they're like um they have a cloacitis um the whether it's uh the pattern of elimination um whether it's uh um residual um you know you'll hear keepers talk about the um the the material that's stuck in the plugs, the hemipenal plugs, which are essentially dried out. What's the term for um, uh, smegma? Um, so, yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so those sorts of circumstances, the general level of activity, the, um, the temperature, the sexual stimulation, even I find um, the substrate in, in as much as uh, lizards will, Add press their vent, their cloaca to the ground to literally wipe it after they've passed a fecal pellet combined with some urates. And inappropriate substrates um, can definitely lead to irritation of the of the everted cloacal mucosa, and then that in turn leads to um, infection and inflammation and. Uh, the obstruction to normal blood flow and unusual stimulation associated with inflammation and possibly those hemipenal plugs turn the inside out hemipenis the right way out and it flops out, Brendan, and it just dangles out. So so let me get this right. They have a sore butt is what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I, I agree. That's certainly – so husbandry, yeah, husbandry is often um, directly or indirectly indirect, related to that. So if we have a really poor setup with then the, that enclosure as well um, and they're then prone to all sorts of sort of um, build-up of, of bacterial um, load and then um, if it's not cleaned or the substrate's inappropriate, Mark, I think that can have a bit to do with it as well. And the other the other obvious one that people will always think about is that, yeah, it's just um, unlucky that um, the little man um, or the little boy gets a bit excited and he pops out his um, one or both of his little hemipenes and it becomes abraded um, and, and damaged um, and cannot retract that back in. Um, and depending on length of time that that's been left out, then um, often you have to make a decision on whether or not to to the, do the surgical approach. And the good news there, Mark, is isn't it um, as far as um, dealing with these is to do what? Cut them off. Surgery, yes, but the interesting, Cut them off, but yeah. interestingly enough, in the literature, I, there are there is lots of talk about um, uh, reducing these about um, in in uncomplicated cases that they're um, cleaned up that um, uh, cold compresses or hyperosmotic solutions, you know, the typical sugar applied to everted mucosal material getting rid of the edema, getting rid of the pain and spasm, um, uh, even the use of uh, uh, topical local anaesthetics, um, uh, all these things 
can lead to the possibility of reducing them um, and then everything goes hunky-dory. But that's not my experience, Brendan. Almost invariably, the ones I get to see are, um, geez, if they were mine, I would want them cut off because they're just <laughs> dead, rotten, black, bird, painful appendages. So, yes, surgery is almost always where I end up. Yes, and uh, well, I've had we've had a few that we've managed to reduce, Mark, that haven't been um, that that they, the clients have brought the lizard in fairly early in the course of the problem, so we've managed to use those saturated sugar solutions and variations thereof, and local anaesthesia plus or minus sedation or general anaesthesia, and, and managed to pop them back in, and they've. Um, not um, been a problem after that but yeah we do end up amputating a fair number of these and the good news with that for, for those who don't do lots of work with with reptiles is um, we don't need to worry about doing um, um, repairing that we can just literally do a transfixin ligature and cut it off because it is only involved with reproduction it is not like say if you're used to dealing with dogs or cats and you may have to be considering doing a perineal uh, uh, urethrostomy so because they're not urinating it's only involved involved in the in reproductive tract those hemipenes and the other good news mark isn't it they've got two of them That's, and, um, so and we've had um uh, desirable males who've um, subsequently fathered uh, clutches of eggs um through the uh the one remaining side so um yeah all is not lost because they do have two brendan and what's your thought on the um, possibility or the thought that um, um, individuals will either be left or right hemipened? Um, so people are left or right-handed um, predominantly. Um, some are ambidextrous. So does the same happen with, with reptiles in that they tend to just use one, the left or the right um, hemipene? And if so, which one do you find? Is it the right in the southern hemisphere and the left in the northern hemisphere, Mark? You're going around in circles now, Brendan. No, it is a good point because um, I think it's a species-specific thing if uh, if my experience is anything to go by. Um, we definitely uh, don't seem to have too much trouble with our bearded dragons, the Centralian bearded dragon that we get to see, Viticeps, Pagona Viticeps. Um, but our blue tongues, on the other hand, do seem to have a preference and... Um, and uh, and the majority, in my experience, are left painted. Um, they are, um, are happy to grab onto the female's neck and uh, slide down the right side and, and slip the left hemipenes in to do the job. Um, and so there is some potential problems with those lizards um, uh, if that uh, um the left hemipenes has to be amputated. I don't think it's an overwhelming, like it's not a 100% thing, uh, but a little bit like you mentioned left and right-handedness in humans, that um, the majority of those lizards are left-oriented, uh, left um, but there still are some right ones. So it does. it's not a, a uh, blanket ban on further reproductive activity if you have to take the left one out. Very... Interesting, Mark. Very interesting. Um, now, what about prolapse of female bits? Do you see many oviductual prolapses? We, we uh, do see occasional ones, not nearly as many as we would see with, um, you know, the the uh, intra-abdominal complications. Generally speaking, if they get to the point where they're able to pass those things, then they tend to not have problems. But uh, but it is true that um, for the same sorts of reasons that a, a cloacitis, um, a uh, um, irritation of the area around the vent, um, can definitely lead to uh, prolapsed material, and particularly um, if the, the um, if we have those. Um, obstructive uh, oviductal, you know, the post-follicular, the post-ovulatory post um, stasis where the, there's structures within the oviduct, um, then, yeah, we have had cases where bits of the reproductive tract and bits of the cloaca are, are, um, are poked out through the vent and, uh, and we've got to deal with those. Yes. We... Um I'd agree. We 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 we. I have seen 
an oviductal prolapse, but it's pretty pretty unusual to rare, Mark, yeah, so nowhere near as common as uh, the boy bits um, where we chop them off. Um, which in the, we've, we've almost run out of time again, Mark, haven't we? So in our, in our last few minutes, I think we should talk about um, the, the more challenging aspects of um, reproductive problems in lizards, Mark, and that's um, the failure to breed. Um, so you may have a client, whether they have only a few lizards at home or maybe they're a large breeder and they're having trouble. They're not doing the job, Mark, these these breeding animals. Um, what's, what's the advice? Or, or let's do a bit of an overview of what could be happening and, and the approach to a workup um, if a client contacts you regarding um, their lizards that are not breeding well brendan it's it's actually not that unheard of and um and particularly as the i don't know that you know it gets called the hobby or the the um uh um herpetoculture where uh, there's an increasing number of people trying to breed specific characteristics and so they have particular individuals that they do want to um uh to generate clutches of eggs from so that they can perpetuate particular colour morphs or um, or other characteristics that they see as favourable. Um, so we do get asked to uh, to do this investigation and, and like, you know, probably a little bit like birds, we um, start at the beginning. And I would say uh, it's an interesting thing because the discussion with the client often uh, is about issues that I think are the least likely and are at the end of our diagnostic workup. Um, I think the vast majority of problems are at the beginning, uh, at the husbandry phase, at the at the point of um, nutrition or um, uh, general health of the adult pair. So the the first step we do is, you know, that whole health assessment of the adult pair, and we would include in that process um, trying to do some blood work, um, trying to stick one of our little scopes, one of our endoscopes, um, into the cloaca to visualise the structures within the cloaca. Um, and probably we're getting better and better and um, and you've talked to me numerous times about your ultrasound work, but we do feel that we're getting a better and better handle on using the ultrasound to assess those intra-abdominal structures. And so we would do that to start with, talk to the people about um, managing the temperatures, managing particularly with some of those um, uh, more unusual colour morphs or scale you know, the bearded dragons with the scaleless patterns, um, ways that those lizards might be managed um, to limit the difficulties they uh, would have because of their genetics. Um, so that's where we'd start, Brendan. Are you doing the same sort of thing? Well, that's very comprehensive there, Mark. I, I, I don't think I've got much to add to that. I, I think there's the other... The other side of the spectrum with, with um, and you're obviously servicing um, a much higher level of client than I do, Mark, um, because you also have the other end of the spectrum where you have the, the hobbyist breeder who only has um, two or three um, lizards at home and, and they're not breeding. And um, those ones, it's sometimes just getting back to the basics where um, we um, firstly try and identify whether they have... Um, um, opposite sexes in the same enclosure and it's amazing um, how many um, people forget the basics as far as making sure that we both have a male and a female just like, um, just, just like I did then <laughs> no no that was it it was um i was i was wrapped in attention um with your with your detailed analysis of those um those um difficult cases god that they're they're, they're they're tricky to work up those mark and they get quite complex and um they're, they're challenging and they're fun but it's a it's a bit of a long haul, isn't it, with some of those, trying to work out what's happening there um, with, with, with those but ones. You, are, um, you hit the nail on the head. It is often a matter of just going back to basics. And even with, um, you know, relatively experienced breeders who who are, um, you know, the, the, who have bred for a long time and then they have a particular um, lizard that they feel is valuable, um, they, they themselves often miss the basic principles that they've applied 
um, over previous generations. And, and even things as simple as, you know, the line of sight in the reptile room so that a, uh, a male can see another male and so all its attention is directed at uh, the territoriality um, uh, to keep that other male away from um, its enclosure and it doesn't mate. So those things... Um, making sure you've got a genuine pair, making sure they're both healthy and not uh, um, dealing with uh, parasites or um, other problems. Um, You're exactly right. Um, Whether it's high-end breeders or uh, relative novices who are just keen to... to, uh, to see their special lizards have babies, um, it is starting at the beginning and working your way through. Yes, yes, and 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 looking at the environment, the photo period, the temperature gradients, um, and then working from there, and eventually you get through all of that, and you work out that hey, they're pretty damn good with what they're doing, and that's when you get to those challenging ones that you you just spoke about in detail, Mark. That. Um, I find exactly that, you know, very challenging um, um, to deal with. And I think part of the issue with those ones, especially when they're trying to do all these fancy breed um, breedings and, and crossbreeding and, and, and colour morphs, et cetera, is I, I think they're really, really pushing the envelope as far as trying to get these animals to breed and they just may not get there with some of them because it's just not just just not going to happen um, with some of those potential cross crosses um, that they're trying to get to breed. Um, yeah. So I think we're just about, um, I was going to say we're talked out, but that's um, pretty hard to do, isn't it, Mark? Um, we're just about finished for our part two of, of lizard um, reproductive problems. and uh, We could talk We could it, talk like for several more episodes, but I reckon we should invite our wonderful listeners to send us some questions so they can direct our discussion in the future, Brendan. Absolutely, and that's vetgurus at gmail.com. Um, and um, send us questions, yeah. We, we do get um, the odd email and some very detailed emails from our listeners, but um, we want more questions about um, or comments about potential topics um, because we want to talk about what you want to hear. So um, send us your thoughts and we'll go from there. And with that... We'll sign off this week and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.